Genesis 6 and verse 1. This is God's word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Father, I pray that through this text this morning that you would open our eyes and teach us, instruct our hearts. Pray that we would see your amazing love for your people. Lord, that we would see the thread of redemption even through such a challenging text. And that we would leave filled with hope in Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So this is, uh, this is one of those texts that if I didn't preach through books of the Bible, I probably wouldn't pick this one. Uh, it's, there's some challenges in here, as you may have uh, heard as we read through it. Some of you read ahead. I got questions two weeks ago about this text, which I'm glad. Um, there are some, some challenging things here. It's not just the sons of God and the daughters of man or the his days shall be 120 years or the Nephilim, the men of renown, or even that the Lord regretted. It's, it's all of those things, but there's even more in here that give us difficulty as we work our way through. But as challenging as this may be, this is God's word, and all scripture is profitable for us. And so just like when we worked our way through the genealogy, and we'll get to do some more genealogies again, this too is profitable for us, and that's my prayer for us today. If you remember when you got your, maybe your first computer or your first VCR or microwave for those who are old enough to remember those, and and you got this machine and you remember like the overwhelming frustration that this was never going to fit into your life. How am I going to work this? How am I going to operate this? I'll never be able to understand it. This is useless. I'd rather not have this in my home. I've heard more accounts of that from VCRs, I think, than any other, other thing. And it's funny that we don't even use VCRs for the most part anymore. All of that has, uh, for the most part, faded from our houses. It's ended up in Goodwill or the dump. But if you remember, after learning and after picking up on these things, things like the microwave, it became a pretty useful tool in your life. It became something that was beneficial. And you may even look back now and think, what was so difficult about this? Why was this so hard to learn? I think the same is true, although those are kind of simplistic examples when we come to a difficult passage of Scripture. And when you read through something like this, especially if you come up on something like this in your quiet time and you think, what am I supposed to do here? 
Uh, you just want to keep moving. But if we would study, if we would wrestle, if we would look at what God has to teach us, I think this can really be uh, beneficial, and that's my, my prayer for us today, that the Lord would open our hearts, illumine our hearts, and teach us wonderful things from His Word. Before we dig in, though, I want us to have the big picture in mind. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, because there are a lot of trees that we're going to look at this morning. So what is the big picture that we see here? Well, first of all, this picture or this uh, passage rather sits as a segue between the histories that we've just studied, the line of Cain, the line of Seth, the genealogies. We compared those two. We looked at them. It sits between that and then the coming account of the flood. As Cain and his descendants attempted to overcome the curse in their own power, right? They tried physical strength, the use of technology uh, to overcome the curse that had been placed on the earth, uh, there were certain descriptors that popped up that we see again in this text. For example, we saw physical attraction uh, with Lamech. You remember, there were two Lamechs. So there was Cain's Lamech, which was the evil Lamech, and then there was Enoch's Lamech uh, in Seth's line that was the good one. So this we're talking about in the line of Cain. And here we see it again in verse 2, the daughters of man were attractive. Uh, We saw lust and violence with Lamech when he stood over his wives and pronounced violence not only on the one he had killed, but threats toward them. We see that again here in verse 2, that they took any that they chose. This violence, lust. Physical strength mentioned in verse 4, mighty men, men of renown. We saw that as well in the line of Cain. It's not that all of these things are bad, physical attraction or strength, for example, but any of these things can become idols of the heart. They can become idols in the sense that we begin to look to them to save us instead of looking to God. Cain and his descendants had determined to make it on their own. And they had rejected God and they lived in rebellion. So when you think about this and you think of the whole of Scripture and you think of the whole of human history, you can see how that continues to be a pattern. Even in our world today, people are looking for, in, in, toward their own abilities, toward their own strengths, toward physical things to save themselves. And all of these things will fade away, even as we do, and they, they will not last. Our hope cannot be in man alone. Uh, God's prophet Samuel would later say, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I think that is a snapshot into what we're looking at today. God is not not simply concerned with one aspect. He's He's concerned with the whole man, with the whole woman. That we would be a people who trust in Him. And as we see, God saw through all of this because... God knows the inward man. Who can hide from God? Who can run away and, 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 and disc- or, or uh, hold anything from Him? God not only knows our thoughts, but He knows our intentions. He knows what motivates us. You know, those things that, that uh, you know they're there when you do certain things in front of people, that you think you fooled everybody, but you know in your heart that you were doing it for the wrong reasons. God knows those things as well. And we see then in verse 5 that God, was, as he saw their wickedness, was sorrowful, that he grieved. And we'll look at that more closely in a bit. But as we think of this, we think of how the Westminster writers captured why we exist. 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And this is what we don't see in the line of Cain that we do see in the line of Seth. And so the big picture here is that man is off track, that he has lost his way. And I think that the picture that's painted here is not just in the line of Cain, but that because of intermarrying, it was all of the people were beginning to lose their way. All of mankind, and this is why God was so grieved. But the point that we cannot lose, that we have to keep in mind, is actually found in verse 8 at the very end. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word for favor is grace. Now, when we hear the Lord, that Noah found favor, our initial, my initial reaction, I'm going to assume that this is the case for some of you as well, is we turn favor into something as something we've earned. But this is the opposite of what this word means. It really means grace. That Noah was shown grace by God. God's gracious promise that he had given to Adam and to Eve in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, is what we see being passed through Noah. That had God wiped out the human race, he would have broken his promise. But he keeps his promises. And so even though he's going to destroy almost all living things, he's going to maintain through Noah this line through which the promise would come. God had poured out his grace upon Noah so that Noah walked with him, and it would be through him that he would preserve the race. Now that's the big picture, and I want to say one more thing about it, and that is the title of the sermon is uh, Grace Grace and Grief. had to look there. Grace and Grief. And if, if you looked at Grace and Grief, uh, you might think that I, I, what I mean here is that we receive grace in times of grief, and that's certainly true, but that's not what I'm getting at today. What I want us to see in this big picture is that even in God's grief and sorrow toward our sin, He still gives grace. God would have been just in wiping out everyone. Who would have, I mean, who who could say that anyone had a leg to stand on? For all have sinned. It says that every thought was only evil continually. And yet, even in his grief, even in his sorrow, he maintains grace. This is huge, not only for this historically as we look back, but it matters in our lives as well. As you struggle in sin, as you struggle in the same things over and over and over, you cannot out God's grace. Now, Paul had some things to say about that, and he said, should, should you know, sin abound so that grace abounds more? He says, certainly not, and that's not what I'm saying either. But in our struggles with sin, we cannot exhaust the grace of God. So keep that in mind as well as we look through this. So the human race in verse 1 is increasing. It says it's multiplying on the face of the land. And as this happened, we see the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Who were these sons of God and daughters of man? You guys can just Google that later. We're just going to move on. Um, So I won't do that to you. There's a couple views There's actually more than a couple views, but there are two primary views uh, that I want to share with you this morning, and I'll tell you where I land, and you can look and and prayerfully consider where you would too. Both of these views are held by godly people 
who have studied the Scriptures, people who I love and respect are on both sides of this discussion. Uh, So let me just preface it by saying that. The first view is that the sons of God were fallen angels who left the spiritual world and came to earth. This first argument has some basis in the linguistics of the text here, as well as in some other uh, passages of Scripture. First, the, the phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament to describe angels in the book of Job. Uh, it's used to describe angels there. And there are these two other passages, one in First Peter and one in Jude, that both make references in the New Testament to fallen angels in the period before the flood. Let me read both of those to you now. Jude, verses 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then 1 Peter 3.19, He went, meaning he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And if you've ever studied either of those books, you know that those are equally difficult passages to understand because they're these little snapshots into things that we don't really have any other references to or very few references to. So there's a lot of ambiguity there in terms of it. And what that means for us is that we don't need to understand all of the details. Because what God has given us, what we need to understand, He has made clear. And so when we have these little things, like who were the sons of God and the daughters of man, and we don't have great clarity, it means that we don't need it, or He would have made it clear. So let me say that up front as well. This view, however, has some problems. The phrase, the sons of God, of course, is used in Job, but it's not used anywhere in the Pentateuch to reference angels. So Moses, as the author of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, never used this phrase to describe angels. There are also numerous examples of Scripture that refer to us as God's children, as sons of God, both Old and New Testament. The judgment of the flood itself was against whom? Mankind. And the animals who were under their care. Had fallen angels been the tempters, the judgment should have been against them. Further, Jesus taught that angels in Matthew 22.30 and Mark 12.25 do not marry or procreate. I think that's probably the strongest argument against this understanding. One final verse, I think, speaks against this view, although some use it to support it, is 2 Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, uh, I, I think that actually speaks to the idea that they are uh, restrained uh, more than that they would have a right to enter into the physical world. Clearly, the demonic realm has influence in the physical world. But in terms of entering the physical world, what do we see? We see demon possession really is as far as it goes. And while there there are exceptions certainly of angels that are not fallen, non-fallen angels, entering in as messengers, they were always sent on specific uh, tasks 
given specific tasks. So you're probably guessing what my view is. That's the second view. And that's this term, the sons of God, describes actually the line of Seth, and the daughters of man describes the line of Cain. And the reason, some of the reasons why I hold this view is that this fits with what we've already seen in the book of Genesis. We see these two different lines, and we continue to see this through the Old Testament, those who would follow God and those who would walk in rebellion against Him. And indeed, that's really the same two categories that we live with today, those who follow God and those who walk in rebellion against Him. Additionally, this would also describe intermarrying between those who were in the godly line and those who were in the ungodly line, which is something that we see is a prominent theme in the Old Testament. Right? <clears throat> How many times do we see God warn His people, do not intermarry with the pagan people, both in the, as they went into the promised land, but also as they were in captivity. Don't intermarry. Why? Because they'll drag you away from me. They'll lead you astray. And so this would fit in with this as well. The New Testament continues this thing. We're told not to be unequally yoked, right, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 with unbelievers. So I think this fits as well. Because of the intermarrying that I think is being described here in this passage, then the whole race, the whole human race, was becoming corrupt to the point of judgment. Again, had angels been the tempters in this scenario, they would have been the subject of God's judgment. Instead, we see God's judgment directed at all flesh, as he describes it in verse 7. And this is the view that Luther, Calvin, Augustine, and others uh, hold. Uh, Let me say this. We don't have to be divided by it, however. Uh, Even though that this, uh, again, some godly people on on the other view, uh, what we need to see, regardless of where we come down on this, is that the problem as one of a failure of us, God's creatures, to follow his ways in, in living in rebellion against him. That was the problem. The problem was they didn't obey. It was very, very simple. And because of this, God's judgment was just. So as we approach then the flood account, which I've heard so many people say, how could a loving God do this? I think we're going to see not only a little bit today, but as we move forward in subsequent weeks, that a loving God can do this. Uh, We can realize then how God is so grieved by the sins of his creation. A couple more things that are challenging in this text, uh, these these first few verses. Verse 3, it says, The Lord speaks uh, in verse 3, saying, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So some take this to mean that the lifespan of all humans would be reduced to 120 years from this point on. And we do see a a drastic decline. Remember, we looked at that. And someone came up to me with their study Bible, and they had a nice graph. You may have that if you've got a study Bible with notes in it. And it showed this rapid decline uh, of of lifespan after the flood. Uh, And there is that. Um, However, we don't have to read very far to see that people did live beyond 120 years. So whether this was just a kind of a a parameter uh, or if it was meaning something else, uh, that, that doesn't answer it completely. So the other view then is that it does mean something else and that this was a span of time that God set for the judgment of the flood to give people time to repent. 
And where I think this view takes support uh, is that this time span actually fits into the narrative. There was about 120 years before the flood. And 1 Peter 3.20 speaks when it says God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That God didn't just come in immediately with justice, but He waited and was patient, giving time, a period of time for repentance. The other challenging part of these initial verses is found in verse 4, the Nephilim. Uh, It says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now those who hold the view that fallen angels came and procreated with women, most of them believe that the Nephilim were the result of that, those unions. They're described as mighty men, and there's this implication that because fallen angels were involved, they had superhuman strength, that they were almost, uh, the, well, they'd be villains, but superheroes, the bad guys, you know, that they would have been the ones that had this uh, uh, superhuman strength. But there's some problems here. Uh, The first is that in verse 4, if we read the text, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. In other words, they were not the result of those unions. They were already there. Second, the Nephilim are mentioned again after the flood in Numbers 13, 31 to 33. Had all flesh been destroyed in the flood except for Noah and his family, and it was, the line of the Nephilim would have ceased. So we shouldn't see them then later in Numbers. So who were they? Well, the word uh, Nephilim comes from a Hebrew verb that, that just means to fall. So these were men who some would say they're fallen ones, others would say cause people to fall. And I think you could see aspects of both. These Nephilim were men of renown. They were people that, that, that stirred fear in the hearts of others. This was the Genghis Khan army of the day. That they put a lot of effort into using psychological warfare. They probably beefed themselves up. They probably had suits of you know, physical things that they attached to themselves. And we've seen this throughout history in certain armies to intimidate others, to drive them away, to cause them to fall. They were the epitome of the line of Cain, who put all of their effort into physical strength and power to attempt to rule and have their way. And so that's why we can see that sin creep in again after the flood. This wasn't about DNA and intermarrying with angels. This was about heart condition, a heart problem. And they come up again and they get this nickname, the Nephilim. Remember then the big picture. Man had declined to an incredible low, rebelling against God and leading us to see how then God responds in verses 5 and following. And I realize that those first four verses probably felt more like a lecture because there's just a lot of detail in there and a lot of sifting and sorting. So let's kind of regroup our minds now as we look at what is probably the most worthwhile and even possibly more challenging part of the text. One of the things to keep in mind is the word that Moses chose to use to name God throughout this text. It's not Elohim, it's Yahweh, right? And we talked about this. Elohim is the transcendent name of God, all-powerful name of God. Yahweh is the imminent name, the close, personal name of God. And so even when we're speaking of God's sorrow and judgment, 
towards sin, it's in the context of his closeness and eminence. In other words, it's fatherly. Fatherly in the best sense of that word. As hard as it is for us to believe that God is love, or because God is love and because he is just, that he would actually judge in this way, we see that it is actually a loving response to this sin and rebellion. And for those of you who are parents, you understand how that works as a parent. You don't, you don't ever get satisfaction of disciplining your children, uh, taking things away, restricting them, modifying their lives to bring correction. But you know it's necessary. And if you love them, you have to do it so that they learn. God is a loving God. Remember, God never sins in his anger towards sin. It is always righteous and appropriate. So let's be careful not to bring our tendencies and reaction towards sin because we typically do sin in our anger. We, we can't have anger without sin, but it's at least in my life it's pretty rare. Uh, we typically cross the line. God never does. The next few verses include what we call a lot of anthropomorphic language. That is, giving non-human entities human characteristics so that there's understanding. And we see this throughout Scripture being used of God to help us understand Him. So the eyes of God you know, roam the earth looking to and fro. The arm of God, the mighty arm of God, or the face of God that we seek. Right? God is a spirit has not a body like man. We teach our children that in the, in the catechism. Question number nine, right? They, that God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have eyes. In fact, God sees all things. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And so what is used to describe is given to us to help us understand, not to limit God in any way. But as true as that is about his physical or lack of physical characteristics because he doesn't have a body, it's also true about his thoughts and emotions. That even the words that we use to describe who God is, how he thinks and how he reacts, they even fall short. Because God is not, I mean, our language is limited. We're finite creatures. And so when we come to these words that are so challenging, we have to give more explanation because they fall short. So look in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right away, the Lord saw. That's anthropomorphic language. Okay? God doesn't have eyes and see like we see. He sees all things all the time. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing ever surprises God. What's interesting, though, is that this is similar to the language that we see in Genesis 1. When God, as each day he created, what did he see? He saw that it was good. And now what has God seen? Wickedness. Utter wickedness. So there's this sharp contrast between these two events. The first that describes this is shockingly blunt, for lack of a better description. Don't you think? I mean, it's... Wickedness was great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When you see the word every, what is left? Nothing. Sidebar note, when you're having discussions with your spouse, don't use the word every when you speak to them because it's quite exclusive. Every time you do this, you don't do that. You never do that. Don't do that because it's so exclusive that causes great damage. Here, though, it's communicating something. 
every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Man had become this machine-making factory, cranking out evil. The word for his heart in, in, in Hebrew thought is more than just what we think of. We think heart emotions, brain, intellect. But heart in Hebrew thinking was the whole man, the whole person. So this was everything, thoughts, attitudes, emotions. And so Moses is painting this grim picture of the state of mankind, that in his heart everything was only evil continually. And then we get to verse 6, the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. As if that wasn't enough, look in verse 7. He goes on further and says, for I am sorry that I have made them. If that doesn't break your heart a little bit when you read this, you may want to read it again, because this ought to break our hearts, that God, the all-loving creator of the world, who set his, his favor upon and created ones in his image, is now sorry that he made them. So as shockingly blunt as it was to describe man and his heart is only evil continually, I think it's just as shockingly blunt here to describe the heartbreak of God. And what we have is anthropomorphic language, language of us, people, to try and understand what God was experiencing. The word for grieved in some translations is is translated changed his mind. And I think that that's probably not the best language to use. Or regretted, rather, is, is, is translated changed his mind. Why? Because God is immutable. God doesn't change. And so when we come to troubling or or tricky passages like this, where it sounds like it's saying something different than we know to be true, we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we look at a passage like Numbers 23, which says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We have to recognize God does not change like us. We also have to recognize that sin should grieve him. This was a righteous reaction of a holy God toward his creatures that he had made who were sinning continually. It's interesting that the words repented, made, and grieved that describe God's sorrow through this passage correspond to the Hebrew words were roots, rather, for the words that Lamech used when he said uh, about his son would bring comfort. And he talked about from the work and the toil of the land. Those three roots match up with those three words. You remember Lamech said this in chapter 5, verse 29, speaking of Noah, because he knew there was a promise. The promise, the seed of the woman. And you think every generation must have, had, must have hoped that they would see that coming Savior, that they would see the Redeemer come. And so he said of Noah, maybe this will be the one who will bring us comfort from our work and our toil. And then we come to verse 8, and this is where we end. This is where we see grace and the grief of God. It wouldn't have been unjust for God to wipe out all of creation because of the wickedness we see described in verse 5. No one had a leg to stand on. And yet God, because he had made a promise... He kept the promise and preserves Noah, which is what we're going to see in the coming weeks. In his wise providence, he pours out grace, favor upon Noah. Noah was not a perfect man. Noah did not have merit badges that God looked down and saw, he's the one I want to pick, he's one of the good guys. 
No, Noah had God's favor. Unmerited favor, which we call grace. And because of this, Noah walked with God. He knew God and he knew God knew him. There was union. It was a union of grace. Let me be clear in saying this. The only hope for any of us ever is grace. None of us earned it. None of us has a leg to stand on. Verse 5 isn't the only shockingly blunt descriptor of the doctrine of depravity of man. In Romans 3, which is actually quoting Psalm 14, so I'm going to get an Old Testament and a New Testament passage in one here. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And it goes on from there and paints an even worse picture. That's who we are. That's me. That's you. And apart from God's grace, we are His enemies. None of us pursued Him. Each of us, when we sensed any desire for God, were at that time experiencing His irresistible grace drawing us to Himself. Grace is what we want. Grace is what we need. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ is our only hope. Uh, This past week, a, a fellow PCA pastor posted something on social media, was meant to encourage, uh, I won't tell you the whole story, but it was, an, it was an encouraging post. And several people kind of chimed in to thank him for his words of encouragement. And I don't remember what the context was, but I just saw this one response uh, from him back to one of the persons that was thanking him for his words of encouragement. And he showed, he posted a picture of his business card. So I think that maybe I need to have this business card. This is what it has. In good preacher fashion, it has three points. You, can't, you can barely see the name of the church and the phone number on the business card. What you see in bold are these three things. Point number one, I'm a complete idiot. Point number two, my future is incredibly bright. And point number three, anyone can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. Folks, that's me that's you, that's all of us. This is, this, going after this grace is the opposite of what Cain and the line of Cain did. They looked at the outward man, they looked at their strengths, they looked at their abilities, they tried to overcome the curse. And what we see in the line of Seth was a people of faith who fell on the grace of God and walked with God in faith because they knew they didn't have a leg to stand on. Your hope is not your intelligence or your physical strength. It's not your retirement account or your earnings portfolio. It is not your pedigree or your last name. It is not your beauty or your good DNA. All of that will fade and pass away, and none of it will ever save you. Instead, we are to follow the line of promise, to walk with God, to walk in faith, trusting the work of Jesus on your behalf. And as you walk in faith in Christ, you repent of your sin, you lay down your own agenda, you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. You consider the needs of others more important than your own. You see, to walk with God is to walk in grace. You are a continual recipient of God's grace. It's not just when you're saved that you need grace. You need grace today. I need grace today. We need God's grace. And as you grow in grace, guess what happens? You become fountains of living water. That's what the scripture calls us, fountains of living water. 
which then begin to pour out that grace toward others. And guess what happens when other people experience that pouring out of grace from your life? As you consider the needs of others more important than your own, as you consider walking in faith with God, repenting of your sins, they see your good works and they glorify God in heaven. They want what you have. You pour out grace on others and they're drawn to the Savior, Jesus. Jesus is grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Come to Him, all you who are weary and find rest. Come to, as we sang today, the crimson healing tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the doctrine of depravity and we consider the weight, not only of the sin of all mankind as we look around our world, but we consider our own hearts And we realize that our own hearts are idol factories. Lord, have mercy on us. We thank you for the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The unmerited favor that has brought us from darkness into light, from death to life, saving us from our sins. Lord, I pray that we would see that need for grace every moment of every day. And as we are tempted to walk in our own strength, our own power, our own abilities, as we're tempted to look back and look at our own merit badges and say, Lord, what about these? Don't don't you owe me something? Lord, may we fall on our faces and repent of such thoughts and know that none of us has a leg to stand on before you and that it is only by your grace that we are called your children. And so may we become a people more and more dependent on that grace, that as we walk in your grace, that we would then become those fountains of living water, pouring out, gushing out grace onto other people around us, that they may see and taste and know that you're good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.